1: Fox News Podcast presents Brett Baer's All-Star Panel. America's
2: got
3: to be in the lead if you want to deal with these threats.
1: We're going to lead. The morning is over. The shiva is done. And if you're a conservative, you should be optimistic. You know, my main priority right now is making sure that it delivers for the American people.
2: Yeah, the president sounded like he's
3: concerned about it, but no
2: specifics, no change in policy. We have to make our country great
1: again, and I will do that.
2: I think the president gets criticized by people all the time for the stuff he says,
1: by people who ignore what he does. Now, Fox's chief political anchor, Brett Bay united states military presence on afghanistan's soil is over but american citizens green card holders and afghan allies remain stranded in the taliban controlled country how many we don't know members of congress have been looking for answers as to how this happened secretary of state anthony blinken up on capitol hill answering questions about that additionally california's governor gavin newsom democrat attempts to stave off a recall recall effort in the Golden State this week. For more on this, we'll bring in our panel this week, Washington Post columnist and AEI resident fellow Mark Thiessen, former Democratic Tennessee congressman Harold Ford Jr., and publisher and editor-in-chief of the Cook Political Report, Amy Walter. Well, first, Amy, congratulations on the new title.
4: Well, thank you very much, Brett. This is, yes, I'm I'm filling some big shoes, but this is a, a really great new adventure.
1: You know, Cook Political Report has been great over the years about uh, kind of forecasting where the the country is on on the big issues of the day. This is a big issue still about Afghanistan. It seems like a big moment when the Secretary of State is up on Capitol Hill, uh, likely taking some really tough questions from Republicans over the next hours and, and maybe a couple of days.
4: Right, and I think you're going to also hear some tough questions from democrats as well many of them have been on your air saying uh things about the withdrawal uh, that have been very critical the question in my mind to to what you're asking brett is then well how long does uh the attention to this last especially among democrats once they finish this hearing will this be the end of it um or will we have more going on for the rest of the year? The one thing I noticed um, in looking just at the impact immediately on President Biden and opinions of him, it's not simply that his approval ratings have taken a hit since the, uh, uh, the, the August withdrawal, but the intensity of that opposition has also gone up pretty strongly. And I think that sort of speaks to the frustration that many had with what it looked like uh, watching the sort of helplessness that they saw there. And so uh, the thing I'm gonna be watching for these next few months, uh, Brett, is just where that intensity goes. Does does it stay, this intensity of opposition or or disapproval of the president? Or um, once we uh, see the focus move to domestic issues, or perhaps there's another big event that's happening somewhere else that Afghanistan does not take up as much of the uh, media bandwidth.
1: Mm-hmm. Mark, I guess it becomes not just the Afghan issue, but an issue of competence and an issue of delivering on, on promises. I mean, it goes beyond the day to day. Um, although Americans on the ground is still really a, an urgent issue.
2: Yeah, I don't think it goes away as long as there are Americans on the ground, for one, and also as long as the terrorist threat is, is uh, festering. I mean, if you go back to the last time that Biden presided over a disastrous withdrawal of American troops, uh, it was in Iraq in 2011, and they went from about 700 fighters when we withdrew to over 32,000 three years later. Um, and it took about three years and we, and of course we saw these videos of executions and there were American Americans beheaded. There were, there were Yazidi women being raped. There were all these horror horror stories coming out of the country, which, which captured people's attention. But then, you know, in August, 2014, Tony Blinken, uh, did an interview where he said, um, you know, that we're not worried about ISIS because they're focused on building a caliphate, not on external attacks. And it was just a few months later that they launched a campaign of terror across the world. They carried out uh, 143 attacks in 29 countries that killed more than 2,000 people, attacks in Paris and London and Brussels and Ottawa. And so I, I suspect there's a very good chance we'll see something similar happening in, the, uh, in, in, in Afghanistan, where the terrorist threat is gonna grow and fester and eventually it'll explode. Um, and if that happens, then uh, this, this, uh, this isn't gonna go away very quickly.
1: You know, Harold, the common refrain from the president and now the secretary of state upon Capitol Hill is that they inherited this deadline, but they didn't inherit a plan of, you know, how how this goes. And understanding that wanting to end the war, uh, military presence in Afghanistan is very popular across the board, Democrats and Republicans. Uh, Why not hit the pause button and come up with a workable sensible plan if it's not tied to that deadline
3: look these are questions that the secretary will will have to answer uh, there's certain things that president trump wanted on a certain timetable that the white house this white house and his president chose not to adhere to so let, let, let's just be candid there's no doubt you have a republican president the previous one that, that declared we would get out had a had a plan to do it, or had some some sort of a plan, semblance of a plan that he now says that would not have resulted in the kind of uh, exit that we that we saw. There's no evidence of, of him of us having him, him having actually having that plan. But you give you take him at his word. Then you have this president who who for a long time uh, has wanted to get out of Afghanistan, campaigned on it, and I think accountability will fall where the mistakes were made uh, during this exit. It's interesting as I listen to some of the Democrats and Republicans, I think Amy's right, Democrats are asking tough questions today as well. I think that the the focus uh, has shifted a bit from some of the concern that was expressed, rightly so, about uh, the role that women will play in that government, that society, in the way the Taliban and their brutal and reprehensible and violent ways that they treat children and women whether or not we, we've left behind a path for destruction and, for that matter, path for women not to gain equality. It's now seems to have shifted more so today to, you know, number one, you got out messily, and two, do we really have an over-the-rides in a the capacity there in Afghanistan? Or are we paving the way for China to have greater influence? I think as we think about our national strategic interests, which is what you have to think about, and I think the only thing you think about when you think about national security, there are things we have to prioritize. And as much as I wanted the, the war itself to be less messy, wars are messy. They're not some finely choreographed Broadway production. They're deadly. Uh, they're, they're, they're horror-filled off, uh, oftentimes. And even exits can, can be that way. Now, that is no excuse but for, for what happened. There should have been a better plan. But I think now, as we think about going forward, we need to learn from these mistakes uh, and I think the most important thing in my mind is: Do we indeed? And I, I was I was more convinced of this three weeks ago. I'm, I'm a little less convinced of it now. Do we really have the capacity with our intel sharing and gathering capabilities that have grown over the last twenty years? The drone technology and military technology has grown over the years. Are we really? Are we really ready? And those are the questions. I, I hope that we are. I'm not saying we aren't, but those are the questions that I hope Democrats and Republicans alike uh, ask Secretary Blinken today. And I hope we get. Uh, honest and persuasive answers from him.
1: Meantime, uh, Amy, in domestic politics, the California governor recall is uh, on the way Tuesday. Uh, If you look at the polls, it seems like Gavin Newsom has the numbers to stay in office, but polls have been wrong before. And this is kind of quirky, a recall effort where you have to say yes, remove him or no, keep him in office. Uh, Just following the instructions can be a little confusing. (laughs)
4: <laughs> right. And it's yet another instance where I think, you know, we will have, because it's a it's an all-mail, M-A-I-L, <laughs> ballot, uh, we already have more than 7 million ballots that have been cast. But you can still vote on Election Day. You can either turn in your ballot in person that you got in the mail, or you can actually go vote in person. Um, so I think we will, as we saw in 2020, see a lot more Republicans show up in person either to vote or to hand in their ballot so the numbers we're seeing today uh in terms of total return ballots are likely to look different come wednesday and most of those ballots being returned are likely to be republicans that said the challenge for republicans in the state has always been the same there are are just so many more Democrats than registered Republicans. The one thing Newsom has going for him that Gray Davis, who was recalled in 2003, didn't, is a unified Democratic uh, base. 90% are against this recall. That wasn't the case with uh, with Gray Davis, where only close to 55, 60% of Democrats were against it. Uh, so the challenge for Democrats and uh, from Earlier this summer looked to be one of enthusiasm, right? That they had the registration advantage, they had the money advantage, Newsom was outraising the yes on recall folks two to one, um, but Republicans were much more engaged. And over the course of the summer, I think for a variety of reasons, that the keeping uh, the, the governor in office, the no on recall, has been able to regain that momentum. Democrats are turning in their ballots. And um, I do think that you will see at the end of the day that yes, Newsom survives probably pretty handily, but that Republicans will probably punch above their weight that they will return more ballots uh, or there'll be a bigger percent of the electorate than their registration would suggest which is not necessarily a great sign for Democrats going forward. You know, in a state like California, you don't need to hit 2020 levels of turnout as Democrat to win. Um, but in a place like Pennsylvania or Wisconsin, Democrats need really robust turnout from their base. And uh, right now, if you know what you're seeing is this mis- mismatch in enthusiasm, that's a real problem. Uh, In the midterms, that's a long way to go. But I just think we have to be careful about reading a whole lot into the uh, the number. I'm sorry. The did he win? Did he not win? Is he recalled? Is he not recalled? And we should be focusing much more on sort of the um, you know the gap between the the ballots cast. Who was more likely to show up? And and uh, what uh, what we can look for. As we go into the next upcoming election, which is Virginia, I think that governor's race in November is going to tell us a lot more about what 2022 could look
1: like. Mm -hmm. Guys, let's hold it right there. We'll continue after this.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com/system all lowercase to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com/system.
1: Mark. Yet uh, it seems like Newsom is concerned. Uh, he's got Vice President Harris uh, came out there. Uh, President Biden is out there uh, campaigning and um you know like amy said you really don't know in a recall who's showing up it's usually the most um ardent supporters of whatever side you're voting for
2: no that's a that's 100 correct and okay if you go back just you know a few months this was a very tight race it doesn't seem to be anymore but as we saw as you pointed out the polls uh, don't always tell the truth and uh and uh, this is a, you know, in a recall, it says it's an enthusiasm uh, issue. But, you know, I think, you know, it used to, I worked on a Senate campaign in California and back in 1994 when there was when Republicans were still competitive and it was always California was always a. A, um, a, a weather vane for the country because it re- literally cons- it consists of every community that exists anywhere in America exists in California. You have the farm country, you have the urban centers, you have the suburbs, the exurbs, you have you know ranchers. You have I mean literally er- every community that exists in the country exists in California. And so it used to be a real uh, you know arbiter of what would happen in the rest of the country, and it's not anymore. It's a, it's a it's such a blue state all the, uh, the, there uh, so many Californians are leaving the state, going to places like Texas and ruining that state, uh, by, by bringing their, the politics that they were, uh, that they, uh, they were supposed to be left behind. Um, it's, uh, you know, so it's not, it's not a sign anymore of where the, where the country goes. I think Amy's right that the Virginia race, uh, is going to be much more of a, of a, of a sign for us as to how the midterms might go in, uh, in the fall.
1: In and lastly, um, on this Harold is, um, you, know, you can see the two sides, how they're laying out this case. And uh, Larry Elder and the Republicans are pointing to policy issues and and uh, Newsom's handling of of COVID and kind of the hypocrisy of him being at the French Laundry restaurant while he's passing mandates and, and uh, stipulations in the government, um, the crime and homelessness in the state of California, and what's happening as far as driving businesses away. The Newsom team is really focused on Larry Elder, his past, his conservative, you know, what he said on talk radio. And, of course, former President Donald Trump, who told Newsmax um, that the California recall against Newsom is, quote, likely rigged, Um, which, again, we go down the rabbit hole of which the election was not rigged. And uh, California has a long history of mail-in ballots, but the president went down that road um, to talk about this, giving almost Newsom and his team a uh, more ammo as they head to the 14th.
3: Look, I, I think as you, as you raise some of those, those issues, the homelessness issue, the crime issue, tax rates, Uh, I know Mark may not think as highly of Californians as I do leaving the state. Uh, The great thing about our country is we can we can vote with our feet uh, and vote with how we live. And, you know, I think those issues I'm not as convinced as as uh, as Amy and Mark are that that he is going to prevail. I want him to prevail. Let me be very clear. And if I were a Californian could vote, I'd vote for. Again, I don't even understand how you I think you you got to vote no on the recall. Then you can vote for him or not. I don't know the rules, but I would be voting in favor of him. Now, as a total aside, they need to end this recall kind of thing the way they have it structured because it's going to come back to bite Republicans, just like it could bite Democrats this time and like it big Gray Davis uh, years ago. But, but back to the facts, the Gray Davis race. They ran Arnold Schwarzenegger, who was a, a huge name, a huge force in politics, uh, an emerging force in politics, and went on to be a huge force in politics. I think if, if Republicans had taken this race more seriously, they might have offered a different candidate, because I do think that 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 Gavin was probably more vulnerable, and he still may be. Who knows those 7 million mail-in ballots? You know, when those people mailed in those ballots, what might have prompted them or? persuaded them to mail it in. You generally think in a special election, you get the really inspired and motivated voters to go vote. And it would seem to me that people who were probably most motivated were probably upset or disappointed or frustrated with Gavin and might have gone to vote against him. So I'm not I'm not as persuaded as, as as everyone is that he he's going to prevail as much as I want him to prevail. And I think if he doesn't, I think this will certainly be a telltale sign for, you know, uh, uh, as you think about Municipal races and local races and state races and then obviously federal races about what what's on the minds of voters as it relates to crime, as it relates to spikes in crime and violence in cities that are you know predominantly managed by Democrats across the country, and for that matter, some states where you have Republicans as governor. I think people are just frustrated. Uh, so I'll be I'll be curious to see the results tomorrow night. But I do hope I think Amy touched on this. I, I hope that. Californians take a step back and understand that you just a person serves is, is elected to serve out a term, um, and that term should be honored uh, unless the person commits a crime or commits some other heinous act that prevents him or her from serving in office. He just can't be, you know, a disastrous governor or a disastrous president. You just all of a sudden, and that's one of the reasons I thought Democrats were wrong and try to impeach. Uh, President Trump, without enough the first time, I thought the second time he deserved to be impeached, but he was already out of office. But you just don't go impeaching people because you disagree with them. Uh, we have elections for that, so uh, I'll be watching closely, like everyone watches uh, tomorrow night. And I think if, if if Governor Newsom loses, it'll be because of what you the litany of issues that you ticked off, uh, Brett. Not only the the French Laundry visit, but I think crime and high taxes and and livability, affordability, and the homelessness issues. Uh, will will resonate as much as any.
1: Yeah. I mean, there are a couple of races that are coming up that will be um, really interesting on uh, uh, the canary in the coal mine kind of thing. And the, one of them is the Virginia gubernatorial race, um, Terry McAuliffe versus Glenn and the Republican. Um, Amy, last thing here, as we set the table for what's coming up, um, up on Capitol Hill, it appears the $3.5 trillion human infrastructure plan, as they call it, the Democrats do. Um, Republicans call it um, extreme spending bill. Uh, it does not appear like it's going to have the votes with Joe Manchin, Democrat from West Virginia, saying, I'm not in. Uh, Kirsten Sinema has said something different. And I think there are other Democratic senators who are in the same boat. That said, uh, the administration is still pushing it. And you also have some fiscal cliffs that are coming up and the raising the debt ceiling and passing spending. Uh, it's going to be a messy month on Capitol Hill.
4: Absolutely. And it's not going to end at the end of September. I think we're going to be going deep into the late fall for a lot of these issues to be resolved. But fundamentally, Brett, where I am, especially on the big human infrastructure reconciliation, we're at a place right now for Democrats where this is just too big to fail. And you have in Biden a president whose numbers, as I said earlier, have uh, his approval rating numbers have already taken a hit, in part because of Afghanistan and part because of the Delta variant, this competence question. They need to have a win, and they realize that this is their last best chance. Nothing's going to happen in 2022. All legislating needs to get done before the end of this year. Democrats are pretty well united on the concept of having a human infrastructure bill. It's just the ultimate price tag. So there's going to be a lot of finger pointing and grieving uh, airing of grievances publicly and fuming privately. But ultimately, I think that Democrats get something. They get it to Biden's desk. What it looks like, what the final number is, is likely to be much lower than three point five trillion. But at the end of the day, um, I think that Democrats recognize that if they want anything to get done, it has to be with Democratic votes and they uh, either they got to take it or they got to leave it. But Joe Manchin is the guy who determines uh, what's in there and what's not.
1: Which is pretty amazing, Mark, because it taking a lot of the heat from the progressives. But there are others who privately voice concerns about not only the number, but the substance of what is in this proposed bill. We haven't even seen a, a whole bill as of yet. Um, concerns that we're spending too much and that eventually we have to turn the financial um, aircraft carrier of America slightly Away from uh, fiscal uncertainty and eventually it's not going to add up. But Manchin's taking the, you know, the torch. Um, but there are others, you know, Maggie Hassan, um, yeah. Mark Warner, um, you know, people who are not in the list. It's Christian Cinema and, and Joe Manchin.
2: Yeah, and in the House, there are a bunch of moderates as well. that uh, Look, uh, Joe Manchin uh, speaks out so they don't have to. I mean, I, I think the opposition is much more than one senator. And look, the, Joe Biden needs a win. I agree with, with Amy on that, but there's a win sitting there. It's called the Bipartisan Infrastructure Bill, which hasn't been, hasn't been passed yet. Uh, why don't they just pass that and put that on the president's desk and let him have a signing ceremony with a bunch of Republicans around him? Wouldn't that be great for Joe Biden after the last month to have a big bipartisan win? But the problem they face is that uh, the the progressives are holding the bipartisan bill hostage until they get the 3.5 billion uh, trillion bill, and the uh, the and so they're 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 doing that, and then Joe Manchin is saying, well, I'm not doing 3.5 uh, trillion, and so they're they're wrapped around their own axle. And then, as you say, we've got the fiscal cliff of the debt ceiling coming up. The Democrats, you know, they're ju- they're just now like trying to get the Senate parliamentarian to agree to allow the the dreamers to be included in the in, in the bill, they could include a debt ceiling increase in, a, in, a, in in the reconciliation bill. They don't need Republican votes to raise the debt ceiling, but they don't do that. Why don't they do that? Because they know that their bill is tied up in inter politics. And if they don't get it resolved by the time the debt ceiling comes around, then they're to blame for, for not passing it. So they don't want to own that. Uh, they could, you know, there's no uh, fiscal cliff when it comes to um, you know, the government's shutting down, they could pass a continuing resolution that funds the government at current levels. Republicans will vote for it. So, all of these are Democrat created crises uh, that, uh, you know, and you would think after the crisis on the border, the crisis in Afghanistan, do they really want to create another now a fiscal crisis that's self created on top of all the other ones that they've created in our national security realm?
1: Yeah. I mean, to be fair, um, Harold, I'll leave with you, is that Republicans had no problem uh, voting for a debt ceiling increase under President Trump. Um, There was not a standoff, obviously. Um, And there looks like there will be one now. So that's, you know, a a Republican thing um, that is different in two administrations. Um, But to Mark's point, um, there is something here that is um eventually going to have to be dealt with uh, on our fiscal stability. And um, long term, it just doesn't add up.
3: You no, know, without question. The, the amazing thing to me about the debt selling, you know, I was in Congress and had to vote for these things and, and been outside of it watching it. Just to remind everybody, these are bills that we've already racked up. These are not things, you know, it's like we, we already had the dinner. Right. You got to pay for it. It's not like we're saying we're yeah. going to go dinner three more nights this week to three more expensive restaurants. And we need someone to call the credit card to give us more credit. We have to pay for the stuff we, we've already done. Uh, you know, they need to change that. The Congress needs to change that as well. And, and I know the politics behind it. Sometimes you want to blame the other side. But these are things we already spent and for and Republicans did it. Democrats did it. There's no one has a monopoly on profligacy and all the kind of spending that that has happened. But look, I, I do agree with Mark and Amy, uh, and I think Mark might have said it more bluntly. The, the Democrats need to give the president a win here. And they need and the reason they can is because obviously there is there's resistance from House Democrats to, to pass this thing, uh, to pass just a, the infrastructure physical one until they get the other one done. But Joe Manchin has given them a path. I mean, he's given them a trillion to a trillion and a half dollars. He's he might be willing to spend, he said, if he can explain it back home. And I think that kind of fundamental political. Uh, talk is something that everybody can understand. You know, he's gotten into a little bit of a tit for tat. He, Senator Manchin, has with the congresswoman here in New York, where I live, in. Uh, she, uh, she represents the Queens area. I think we, her acronym is AOC. She, I think, suggested maybe some of his words were patronizing the way he described her. I'm not, I know Joe Manchin. I don't, I don't, I don't, I've never known him to be that way. I hope they can get in a room and try to figure out what their priorities are. And realize they're not going to get the three and a half number and everyone figure out what 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 one and a half or one and one and a half is going to make the country and families and communities stronger and better and let Democrats go out and do it. Otherwise, I think Mark is not that I don't want Mark to be right, ever, but I hope he's I hope he's not right in this regard that if Biden doesn't get a victory, that's going to be really disastrous for him. I happen to think he's right about that. I think Biden needs a win and the Democrats ought to give him one, get a little momentum. And the country may then come back around and say, you know what, we're willing to spend another two to two and a half, whatever the number may be, trillion dollars for some of the other human infrastructure that the president wants. One last thing on California. I didn't mean at all to suggest that Virginia was not uh, the, the, you know, a, a, a test case. I will say this. We talked about Texas and people from California moving to Texas. Texas has given Democrats kind of a lifeline in some of these, these uh, states, particularly Virginia, after this abortion law, because it's going to allow Terry McAuliffe and others to shift the conversation from some of the things they might not have wanted to talk about to this very issue, which is something that he indeed wants to talk about. So.
1: Well, that's exactly right. I mean, that that moment uh, changed politics Uh, for Democrats to be able to focus on that in the short term. A lot of people say the process is just boring for people out out there in America, but the process is eventually gets us to uh, getting something across the finish line. And we always do seem like we're one election away from solving big problems. Uh, we'll see how this plays out. Panel, thanks so much. Here's a bit of American history. On September 13, 1788, New York City was established as America's first capital under the Constitution. New York had already hosted the nation's legislature and had served as the de facto capital since 1785. In late 1784, the Continental Congress voted to make New York City its meeting place until a federal district on the banks of the Delaware River near Philadelphia could be completed. They they chose Old City Hall, which was then renamed Federal Hall, to serve as the Capitol building. Congress met for the last time in Federal Hall on August 12th, 1790, before relocating to Philadelphia, and then later, Washington, D.C., the District of Columbia. That'll do it for this week. You can hear more of this series at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. Make sure to leave a rating and review. We want to hear from you. For Mark and Harold and Amy, I'm Brett Baer. We'll see you next time.